Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, October 24th, 2022, the 642nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. You'll be supporting me and the work I do and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a variety of platforms. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. So let's start with China because... Attorney General of the illegitimate administration, Merrick Garland, just held a press conference to make a national announcement regarding charges against 13 Chinese nationals trying to influence the U.S. This is from USA Today. 
Federal authorities unsealed charges Monday against a dozen people, including members of China's security and intelligence apparatus, for allegedly trying to exert influence in the United States to benefit their own country. Three cases were filed in New York and New Jersey, including seven Chinese nationals, two of whom were arrested on Thursday in New York, were charged with participating in a scheme to force the repatriation of a Chinese national living in the United States. These charges include surveillance and engaging in a campaign to harass and coerce the U.S. resident under a campaign known as Operation Fox Hunt. Two Chinese intelligence officers were charged Monday with attempting to obstruct a criminal prosecution in New York. The defendants remain at large. They were charged with trying to steal confidential information from a global telecommunications company. Four Chinese nationals, including three Ministry of State Security Intelligence officers, were charged Monday in New Jersey for allegedly taking part in a long-running intelligence campaign targeting U.S. individuals to act as agents of China. So with simple math, I do see 13 there. It's strange that USA Today said it was a dozen just a couple of paragraphs ago. Garland said, as these cases demonstrate, the government of China sought to interfere with the rights and freedoms of individuals in the United States and to undermine our judicial system that protects those rights. They did not succeed. The Justice Department will not tolerate attempts by any foreign power to undermine the rule of law upon which our democracy is based. Now, obviously, it's good that the Department of Justice and federal law enforcement are pursuing Chinese intelligence assets in the United States. But it is a little weird from this particular attorney general and this particular administration because the uniparty that they represent, that they are full-fledged members of, has been complicit in Chinese growth and Chinese theft of American intellectual property, the shift of American manufacturing to China, and the empowerment of the Chinese Communist Party. They've also worked hand-in-hand -hand with industries who make billions of dollars in China and support the uniparty agenda in America, and the media, who is not only funded by the CCP, but has covered for the CCP for a very long time. It's odd that they chose to make a big announcement about this, considering that context, unless they are trying to change the narrative regarding China. And there's good reason to believe that's exactly what they're doing. Over the weekend, Xi Jinping, who has now solidified his position as the leader of China for the next five years, maybe for life, was closing out the Communist Party Congress and sat still and silent as his predecessor, Hu Jintao, was removed, removed from the ceremony. This is Japan Times. The headline is former Chinese President Hu Jintao removed from Congress. Former Chinese President Hu Jintao was unexpectedly led out of Saturday's closing ceremony of the Communist Party Congress in a dramatic moment that disrupted the highly choreographed event, whose departure was left unexplained and the nation's censors appeared to quickly scrub any recent references to him from the Internet. The frail-looking 79-year-old seemed reluctant to leave the front row of proceedings at Beijing's Great Hall of the People, where he was sitting next to President Xi Jinping. 
A steward attempted to take a sitting who by the arm before being shaken off. The steward then attempted to lift who up with both hands from under the armpits. After an exchange of about a minute in which who spoke briefly with she and Premier Li Kikyang, he was led out of the hall. A seated she was filmed holding papers down on the desk as who tried to grab them. Who patted Lee's shoulder as he left, as most of his colleagues stared firmly ahead. The week-long Congress occurred mostly behind closed doors, but whose departure occurred shortly after journalists were allowed in to cover the closing ceremony. Authorities offered no explanation for whose exit, which came just before the 2,300 delegates at the Congress voted unanimously to endorse Xi's core leadership position. We still don't know what caused whose actions, such as whether it was opposition to Xi's power or simply an unfortunately timed senior moment, said Neil Thomas, a senior China analyst at the Eurasia Group Consultancy. Now, the Eurasia Group is led by Ian Bremer, and they are 100% globalist. So you can imagine that they would prefer the unfortunately timed senior moment narrative to play. So without more information, it's hard to draw solid conclusions about how this incident relates to Chinese politics. Although I would doubt that's the conversation being had at the Eurasia group when they're not talking to reporters. Search results for Hu Jintao on the Twitter-like Weibo platform appeared to be heavily censored Saturday afternoon, with the most recent result dated Friday and posts limited to those of official accounts. The official CCTV evening news coverage of Saturday's Congress closing ceremony included footage with who, as usual, from before the incident, who had appeared slightly unsteady last Sunday when he was assisted onto the same stage for the opening ceremony of the Congress. Late on Saturday, China's official news agency, Xinhua, tweeted about the incident. Xinhua Net reporter Liu Xiaowen has learned that Hu Jintao insisted on attending the closing session of the party's 20th National Congress, despite the fact that he has been taking time to recuperate recently, it said. When he was not feeling well during the session, his staff, for his health, accompanied him to a room next to the meeting venue for a rest. Now he is much better, a second tweet said. She is all but assured of being formally announced on Sunday as the party's general secretary for another five years. This will allow Xi to sail through to a third term as China's president due to be announced during the government's annual legislative sessions in March. Since taking over from Hu a decade ago, she has become China's most authoritarian leader since Mao Zedong. She has crushed opposition to his rule inside the party, with many of his rivals jailed on corruption charges, and he has shown no tolerance for any form of public dissent. Now, remember, you are getting the global propaganda narrative. Maybe this is no big deal. Maybe who just didn't feel well. Well, if he just didn't feel well, why was he resisting leaving? That narrative can basically be thrown out the window. There's a power struggle happening in China, and it seems like the globalists are losing it. Now, the natural thing is to say, hasn't she been in the Chinese Communist Party forever? Isn't he the worst of the worst? He is the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. And that's a totally reasonable point to make. Just not sure it's true. And how could you be sure without knowing a great deal about Chinese politics and about Xi's particular positions 
in relation to the global communist order. And again, that's what really matters here. China is essentially a one party state. So every politician in the government in China essentially is going to be part of the CCP. So for me, that alone is not enough to make a judgment on. Donald Trump was the leader of the Republican Party. He was the leader of the American government. And if the American government is mostly a uniparty operating at the service, not of the American people, but of the global communists, then what we have essentially is an American communist party that does not go by that name and in fact disguises itself by being two parties, the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, which at this point, in terms of the establishment, is a distinction without a difference. They are part of the same uniparty and they are working for the benefit of the global order. So Donald Trump, while he is the leader of that government, does not automatically become part of the uniparty. And I hope that the point I'm making makes sense. It's not enough to simply say Xi Jinping has always been part of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, she has had it as his goal to eliminate corruption in the Chinese government. And this has been an ongoing process for seven or eight years now. And again, you have to think of these things in two ways as you're listening to the media tell you a story. In the article from Japan Times I just went through, they used that to make it sound like Xi Jinping is this authoritarian leader who is trying to eliminate his political opposition. And sure, maybe that's exactly what's happening. And he's the worst person on the entire face of the earth. Totally possible. Okay. But how would they describe Donald Trump if Donald Trump's administration were prosecuting actual corruption in the American government? We know the corruption exists. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. It goes all the way right up to the top. Now, you'll know that I do not consider Joe Biden to be at the top of much of anything, but it certainly goes to him. You can read the report on the Biden laptop that Marco Polo released last week, and you will see an incredible amount of corruption by the fake president. We also know that the Clintons are corrupt. The Bushes are corrupt. The Obamas are corrupt. The Romneys, the Pelosi's, the McConnell's. You can just keep going down the list. And at every single level, the members of the American Communist Party, the Uniparty, serving the global communist agenda, all of them have been corrupted and compromised. When they are dealt with, it won't be hard to imagine global media reporting all of it as an effort by the authoritarian dictator Donald Trump to eliminate his political opponents. And let's remember, by the way, that all of these people who are corrupt in the American government are supporting the war in Ukraine, even though Volodymyr Zelensky, the comedic actor in Ukraine, the savior of our democracy worldwide, outlawed and eliminated all opposition political parties just a few months ago. 
So there's nothing principled or legitimate about being told by global propaganda media that the authoritarian ruler is eliminating his political opposition. And Hu Jintao was not the only Chinese official to have a bad weekend. The man he patted on the shoulder as he was leaving, Li Keqiang, has been left off the new party's central committee. This is from Reuters. Chinese Premier Li Keqiang and three other members of the elite Politburo Standing Committee of the Ruling Communist Party were excluded from the newly elected Central Committee on Saturday. More than 2,000 delegates to a once every five years party congress in Beijing elected a 205-person Central Committee as well as 171 alternate members. Li Keqiang, Li Zhangshu, Wang Yang, and Han Zhang, members of the current seven-person Standing Committee, were excluded from the new Central Committee. Zhang Xu and Zhang had been expected to retire due to age norms. The Central Committee will convene behind closed doors at its first plenary session or plenum on Sunday to vote on the next Politburo, usually comprising 25 people and its standing committee. Also excluded were Yi Gang, governor of the Chinese Central Bank, and Guo Shuqing, chairman of the banking and insurance regulator, Vice Premier Liu He. China's economic czar was also excluded from the new central committee. So there's pretty obviously a shakeup going on in the power structure of the Chinese Communist Party as she has solidified his power and seems to be eliminating those that stand in his way. And obviously, I can't say for sure that this is a good thing, but I'm at least open to the possibility and that's not a possibility we will have communicated to us by the global propaganda media, especially not as they continue to seed the narrative that China is going to invade Taiwan and take Taiwan. Now, I've been saying for months that I believe the China-Taiwan narrative will be a direct parallel to the Russia-Ukraine narrative. Now, certainly there are plenty of differences in these situations, but in terms of what we'll be hearing from the media and from politicians, from the central narrative about both of these situations, I imagine they will be almost mirrors of one another. It's the big country invading the small country, as Kamala Harris so eloquently explained. In Ukraine, we had to preserve the sovereign borders of this independent state. We had to preserve our democracy worldwide. That was the whole mission over there, as it was told to us. Of course, Ukraine is not really any sort of democracy. The government was just removed in 2014 by people who are currently in the illegitimate administration right now and people like John McCain and Lindsey Graham. Members of the Uniparty took Ukraine's government out on behalf of George Soros and planted puppet actors there. And Zelensky, of course, is one of those. Now we're hearing that Taiwan is this independent democratic state. And the worst thing that could ever happen would be China taking Taiwan back, as they did with Hong Kong just a couple of years ago. But here's the thing. Taiwan is just part of China, and that's certainly how it's viewed from China's perspective. 
much like the contested area in eastern Ukraine, is now only part of Russia. It doesn't matter at all how our media describes it to us. Our media doesn't make those decisions. Now, this is from the BBC last year. This is 6 October 2021. What is the one China policy? It is the diplomatic acknowledgement of China's position that there is only one Chinese government. Under the policy, the U.S. recognizes and has formal ties with China rather than the island of Taiwan, which China sees as a breakaway province to be reunified with the mainland one day. Again, this is the BBC from a year ago. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is the real state of play regarding China and Taiwan. The one China policy is a key cornerstone of Sino-U.S. relations. It is also a fundamental bedrock of Chinese policymaking and diplomacy. However, it is distinct from the one China principle whereby China insists Taiwan is an inalienable part of one China to be reunified one day. The U.S. policy is not an endorsement of Beijing's position. And indeed, as part of the policy, Washington maintains, quote, a robust, unofficial, end quote, relationship with Taiwan, including continued arms sales to the island so it can defend itself. Although Taiwan's government claims it is an independent country, officially called the Republic of China, any country that wants diplomatic relations with mainland China must break official ties with Taipei. This has resulted in Taiwan's diplomatic isolation from the international community. How did it come about? The policy can be traced back to 1949 and the end of the Chinese Civil War. The defeated nationalists, also known as the Kuomintang, retreated to Taiwan and made it their seat of government while the victorious communists began ruling the mainland as the People's Republic of China. Both sides said they represented all of China. Since then, China's ruling Communist Party has threatened to use force if Taiwan ever formally declares independence, but it has also pursued a softer diplomatic track with the island in recent years. Initially, many governments, including the U.S., recognized Taiwan as they shied away from communist China. But the diplomatic winds shifted as China and the United States saw a mutual need to develop relations beginning in the 1970s with the U.S. and other countries cutting ties with Taipei in favor of Beijing. Many, however, still maintain informal relations with Taiwan through trade offices or cultural institutes, and the U.S. remains Taiwan's most important security ally. So it's worth asking if Taiwan is this important democracy and not part of China, why did all of the officials who have empowered China over the last few decades accept the exact opposite as a condition of doing business with China? Who are the winners and losers? Beijing has obviously benefited the most from the policy, which has cast Taiwan out into the diplomatic wilderness. Taiwan is not recognized as an independent country by much of the world, nor even the United Nations. It undergoes extraordinary naming contortions just to participate in events and institutions like the Olympic Games and the World Trade Organization. But even in its isolation, Taiwan has not entirely lost out. It maintains vibrant economic and cultural ties with its neighbors and leverages on its long-term emotional relationship with the U.S. to extract concessions. Oh, they have an emotional relationship. 
It employs a small group of powerful lobbyists in Washington, D.C., including former Senator Bob Dole, who U.S. media reported helped to arrange contacts that culminated in a controversial phone call between Donald Trump and Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen. As for the U.S., it can benefit from formal relations with China, its biggest foreign lender and a top trade partner, while quietly continuing to maintain strong ties with Taiwan. The one China policy is a delicate balancing act that the U.S. has perfected over the decades. How Washington can continue doing so remains to be seen. So is the one China policy official U.S. policy? Well, let's check in with the fake president. This is from just over a month ago at the United Nations. To strive for peaceful resolution of conflicts. We seek to uphold peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits. We remain committed to our one China policy, which has helped prevent conflict for four decades. And we continue to oppose unilateral changes in the status quo by either side. Now, by itself, that's a fairly nothing statement. He's reaffirming the policy, the one China policy, and also saying he doesn't want anything to disrupt the status quo. He wants everything to remain the same. Except that's not a realistic situation in the world because everybody knows that China is going to take back Taiwan. Now, they're going to call it an invasion. They'll probably call it a war. They'll talk about how the U.S. must defend Taiwan, and they'll talk about how the U.S. now has to go to war with China. They will say all of that is for the purpose of maintaining Taiwan as an independent, free, democratic country. Even while the formal policy that they still support says the opposite, it's almost like they're intending to lie to us to get us involved in another foreign conflict about borders which are not ours. And we are supposed to go along with this because Taiwan is a democratic country and they have all the chips. If only we had a president who was trying to bring all of that manufacturing back to America. Oh, wait, we did. His name was Donald Trump and the illegitimate administration currently in place is attempting to take credit for all of that. And of course, all of this comes in the middle of their efforts to escalate the war in Ukraine or just any war with Russia at this point. David Petraeus inserted himself into the conversation over the weekend. He was asked what the red line beyond which NATO must become more involved in the conflict would be. And he said, I think the red line for NATO is directly related to the collective self-defense commitment of Article 5. That is to say, an attack against a NATO member country. Having said that, I think it is possible that Russia could take an action in Ukraine that would be so shocking and so horrific that the United States and other countries might react in one way or another. But as a force multinational led by the United States and not as a NATO force. So essentially, he's saying that Russia is going to do something so awful in Ukraine that the United States is going to get some of its ally countries to initiate their own military effort against Russia. And naturally, they would do this without declaring any sort of formal war. He's just asserting that the United States has the right to do this because. And I guess it's because Russia is just so bad. Now, what might that horrible Russian act be? 
Well, for weeks and weeks now, weeks during which, by the way, they've blown up a pipeline and a bridge, and they're continuing to shell the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. They've been seeding the narrative that Russia would use nuclear weapons because Russia is being so defeated in Ukraine that they might go and do something crazy. Well, this is a statement from today, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Maria Zakharova. Alarming information from reliable sources indicate that Kiev is preparing a provocation with the use of an explosive device filled with radioactive substances, a.k.a. a dirty bomb. Nothing could cause greater concern. The purpose of this heinous provocation is clear to accuse Russia of using a weapon of mass destruction. The Ukrainian authorities and their Western handlers hope that it will lead to a broad anti-Russian campaign, undermine Moscow's credibility in the eyes of its partners and lead to our country's isolation in the international arena. According to our sources, the Ukrainian side has already begun to implement the plan. In particular, the Vostoshny ore mining and processing plant in the town of Zoltia Vodi and the Institute for Nuclear Research in Kiev have been tasked with making the bomb. We cannot rule out the possibility of some Western countries helping Ukraine fulfill this goal. Reportedly, they are holding talks with Ukraine on supplying the dirty bomb components to it. According to information obtained by Russia, Kiev is planning to detonate the bomb by disguising it as an unauthorized burst of a low yield Russian nuclear bomb with enriched uranium. In this context, we would like to note Volodymyr Zelensky's irresponsible remarks at the Munich conference in February about Kiev's aspiration to obtain nuclear weapons, which would create actual risks for Russia and international security. The issue concerns potentially revising Ukraine's non-nuclear status, which would mean an attempt to get hold of nuclear weapons to the detriment of the NPT regime. Given Kiev's recent statements about the need for preemptive nuclear strikes by NATO against Russia, this is absolutely unacceptable and untenable. Moreover, calls to detonate a dirty bomb in Moscow have already been making the rounds on Ukrainian Internet lately. Instructions on how to assemble one were even posted. By all indications, Ukraine is trying to play out a scenario similar to the provocation in Bucha when they attempted to groundlessly accuse us of civilian deaths. Despite our repeated requests, including to the UN Secretary General, to provide the victims personal data and information about the circumstances that led to their deaths, we still haven't received an answer. We demand that Kiev authorities and their Western handlers stop taking actions that are leading the world toward nuclear catastrophe and threatening innocent civilian lives. It would be reckless to ignore Russia's warnings in this regard. It is dangerous to push things toward escalation. The West should not be measuring the width of the red line. So they are continuing to ramp up various war scenarios. Why do they want to be at war? Well, one answer is that the military industrial complex lost its cash cow in Afghanistan a little over a year ago and expect to have that replaced. Ukraine looked like the most obvious answer, and then Taiwan, perhaps the next one. Obviously, the global communists and the governments they have infiltrated and now control want to preserve these hubs of money laundering, human trafficking, biomedical research, 
these little proxy states that they have now armed and expect to continue to use as a local threat to these world powers who don't seem to be aligned any longer with the global agenda. And remember, as Afghanistan was falling apart, George Soros himself tweeted that Xi Jinping was now the most dangerous man in the world. He said that about Donald Trump. He said it about Vladimir Putin. And again, these people don't care at all about preserving democracies for the citizens of the world. That is probably something they care about the least. In fact, that is a hindrance to everything they're trying to do. They're trying to create a one world government. They have already created it to a large degree. We still have countries each named as themselves and their cultures are different in many ways. But that's why they keep moving people around the world to make every place multicultural. They have no interest in countries being different and the citizens of those countries having control over the future of their countries. That's not part of the plan. So they definitely aren't doing any of this to preserve democracy anywhere. They're trying to preserve their assets and their systems. And we also have a situation where these same countries are forming currency alliances with other sovereign nations who are not signed up to the global agenda. Brazil, of course, being one of those. And the runoff election in Brazil is happening on Sunday. In Brazil, they're now talking about arresting anyone who's discussing the election fraud system in Brazil. They are trying to take total control of that narrative and do whatever they can to make sure that Lula wins and that that win is uncontested. And I think it's very likely that they're going to fail at that. So Joe Biden has no pull in Russia. He has no pull in China. He has no pull in Brazil. We've seen that he has no pull in Saudi Arabia. And it's not merely coincidence that Donald Trump had good relations with all of these leaders in terms of working theories for how to understand all of this. Everything still points to the idea that the global communists are being systematically removed from all of their corrupt little hubs of power around the world. And I think as the situation between China and Taiwan progresses, we may see that same thing happening there the same way it is in Ukraine. Now, changing subjects without a segue. Donald Trump held a rally Saturday night near Corpus Christi, Texas, and at 9 p.m. Eastern, the moment when the January 6th prisoners always sing the Star Spangled Banner, the crowd at the rally just broke out in song and sang the Star Spangled Banner. It was actually a pretty incredible moment. And I don't think people are aware of this, but Donald Trump has mentioned before that he plans to pardon those protesters who have been held in violation of all of their civil and constitutional rights once he returns to the White House. Now, over the weekend, MSNBC had a focus group asking Trump supporters about their thoughts on January 6th. Doug Mastriano was at the insurrection and he was photographed breaching one of the restricted areas. Is that okay? 
Which area? Because I saw a video where Capitol officers yes. were taking away barriers and unlocking doors, doors for people. So, yeah. oh, that's I mean, I, they opened the gates. So and it let shouldn't them in. be disqualifying for an elected official no, no. if they no, participated in January 6th. He, he didn't strike anybody. He didn't hurt anybody. Yeah, and the only one that died was a protester there, not a Capitol police. An unarmed officer. female veteran. Was that's the only one police. that died. That's well, the only one who died. A police officer did die. No. It was a stroke. Attack. That's not. That's not, not on site. Caused by that, that's because right. he shouldn't have been a police officer. It was one woman. So, what do you him. make though overall of January sixth? I mean, it was watching that footage. It was pretty disturbing. I mean, there were people throwing excrement at the walls, and it was our, you know, it's the Capitol. That it looked a lot true. like Antifa's actions. Yeah, it looked it's a lot, except on a much smaller scale. It looked the same as the Black Lives Matter riots. That's it's what I saw. The similarities to being Minneapolis burns, Kenosha burns. But so it's okay just because just because one side that you disagree with. I'm saying Antifa infiltrated. It's good for one, it's good for the other. Anybody I don't who harms anybody, way. anybody who caused property destruction, that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, but if you're there making side. your voice heard at the right. people's house, no less, yeah. that, I, that's, again, it's a fundamental constitutional right of an American citizen. And people should not be being held political prisoner uh, because of it. For misdemeanors. That's I mean, East Germany. That's East Germany. Tactics. Yeah, that's what's scary. It was an actual fiery but mostly peaceful protest. And the other ones that were the opposite. Was the protest legitimate our, in your our eyes? Administration, because... I feel like, is using it as their Reichstag fire. Yeah. That's exactly what they're using it as. Mm -hmm. Do you think that President Trump could have quelled the violence that day? Not him personally. I don't no. think so, no. It started while he was still speaking. I was actually there. I, I, I was there to, to see what I thought was going to be the last time I ever saw Trump rule of Iron. So did he tell everybody to go and, and start riding? No. I didn't think so. No, it, and it actually, um, I, I, I stayed for the whole speech, like a ton of people did. Mm -hmm. And then we all headed to the Capitol because he said, let's go to the Capitol and, and peacefully let, peacefully let our voices keyword. be heard. And we get to the Capitol and we're like, what the hell's going on? Because it had already happened. I'm pretty sure I saw Democratic operatives instigating people to oh, cross totally. barriers. Now, all of these people, of course, are exactly right. Everything they just said about that event was true, and it's evidenced, and you can see it in video of that day that is simply unavailable on platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and anywhere in mainstream media. You actually heard that MSNBC reporter say, well, you know, all that stuff we saw on video, because that's how the mainstream media operates. They show you the same clips over and over and over and over and over again, so that your only memory of an event is that series of clips. You saw it with your own eyes. That's what people think. I saw what happened on January 6th, 2021 with my own eyes from my couch as they played the same clips over and over and over again. The throwing excrement on the walls, I don't know where they've gotten this, but that too is something Antifa does. That's something Antifa did. Black Lives Matter Antifa used that regularly throughout the summer of 2020, particularly at the federal courthouse in Portland that they attacked for over a hundred nights in a row. They were freezing water bottles so that they could throw them 
at federal officers. They were throwing canned food at federal officers. And they do this because they have essentially the same function at that point as bricks, but they can't get in trouble for having them in their backpacks. They were literally shining laser light pointers in the federal officer's eyes and trying to blind them. But how will this be perceived by the audience of the mainstream media, by MSNBC's audience? Well, they're going to look at this and just think, oh, look at all those stupid Trump supporters. Look at all those victims of disinformation. And they'll get scared. They'll think, oh, wow, the disinformation problem is so bad. We need more censorship. We need to make sure that people like this have no say in our politics whatsoever. It's actually kind of sick. You got to hope, though, that there are enough people who still watch MSNBC who might see this and be like, oh, yeah, well, some of those things that those people are saying, those are definitely true. Like Brian Sicknick, the Capitol Police officer that the MSNBC reporter is referring to, he did die, we're told, of a stroke the next day, not as any result of what happened at the Capitol. They initially reported that as him being bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher. That story didn't even make it through the day. That was just blatantly false. But to them, he still counts as a victim of January 6th violence by Trump supporters. They mentioned Ashley Babbitt's death, but she actually wasn't the only protester to die that day. The mainstream media's story about January 6th is absolutely and completely wrong. And there are good reasons why. This is from October 20th in the Epoch Times. Internet sting operation J6 deleted exposes how Twitter manipulated January 6th narrative in real time. The developer of a social media monitoring algorithm explains how his internet sting operation, J6 Deleted, exposed how Twitter manipulated the narrative in real time on January 6th, 2021. In 2018, Jason Sullivan, a social media and Twitter specialist, was subpoenaed by the special counsel investigating the now debunked theory that Trump was colluding with Russia. Sullivan is now the lead investigative consultant to former President Donald Trump's legal team via Peter Tickton. In an exclusive interview with the Epoch Times, Sullivan explains how he discovered evidence of a coordinated operation by influencers and Twitter to set the narrative on January 6th, 2021, as events unfolded. We've created an algorithm that enables us to determine which tweets are on a trajectory of becoming a viral event, Sullivan explained. We are watching social media intelligence in real time all day, every day, based on specific search terms, key phrases and hashtags. Our algorithm can tell us exactly how much traction a particular tweet is receiving and how often people are reciprocating, such as liking and retweeting. When it meets a certain threshold, we are automatically alerted. Leading up to January 6th, we were listening to the social media discourse, Sullivan recalled, and we set up the program to capture every viral event that took place on January 6th that pertained to the name Trump. Think about that. Trump is the most tweeted word on the planet. And whether they liked Trump or hated Trump, if their post included the word Trump, we flagged it. We were listening to people who were trending. We were listening to people who were leaking things. We were listening to people who were seeding disinformation. 
What we discovered is that there were trends that clearly indicated there was going to be some type of false flag operation on January 6th. As Sullivan noted, the one who drives the narrative drives the outcome. And as you know, that's been a consistent focus of this show. It is impossible to have enough information to know the exact reality of all the events we're witnessing. What we can know is that we are receiving a narrative about those events and often from people whose goal it is to mislead us about events. Knowing that that's their intention and knowing enough of the relevant facts that are covered in their articles, we can extract what it is they want us to believe and then analyze that. And once we know what it is they want us to believe based on a series of facts and slogans derived from the false reality, we can reverse engineer all of it to figure out what it is they're actually trying to cover up with the stories. And it might not be exactly right, but usually it's directionally right. And as time passes, we find out more information that may well support the initial theory and often does. The people who control the means of information are trying to manipulate real world events and create real world events based on their manipulations of the narrative. So how they create that narrative is one of the most important things to understand. What we discovered is that many of these captured tweets, which had exculpatory evidence, had been conveniently and systematically removed from Twitter, and some of the pages have even been scrubbed from the Internet, Sullivan recalled. So, too, had the communications feeds and comments within the viral threads, which contained additional exculpatory evidence. I want to make it perfectly clear that we conducted this sting operation, Sullivan asserted. We have it all. We have all of the tweets and all of the exculpatory evidence Twitter thinks it's scrubbed from the Internet. We have them all. The collection of all viral tweets captured by his algorithm, J6 deleted, is now available to the public. According to the Nashville Film Institute, social media influencers are digital creators with large social media followings who spark dialogues, set trends, and generate interest among their fan communities. Among the dozens of influencers who were active on January 6th, several stood out as leaders in pushing what Sullivan calls the false flag narrative. Aaron Rupar, an associate editor at Vox, initiated no less than 18 viral Twitter posts on January 6th. Investigative journalist Laura Logan has worked closely with Sullivan and has seen his trove of tweets captured by his algorithm. She knew immediately that Rupar was spreading misinformation. In particular, she knew Rupar's claim that Trump attacked four black people within 30 seconds when speaking about Stacey Abrams and Oprah Winfrey had absolutely nothing to do with race. During Trump's speech on January 6th, he mentioned Abrams twice near the halfway point and twice near the end. All references were related to her failed campaign to become governor of Georgia. Trump also mentioned Winfrey twice, once saying Oprah used to be a friend of his, and then how he, quote, didn't notice there were too many calls coming in from Oprah after he became president. Rupar is so well known for his history of spreading misinformation and false narratives that on March 21st, 2021, the Urban Dictionary unveiled a new verb, Rupar. It means to lie with impunity a brazen statement with a focus on misleading, usually with the intention of a predetermined outcome. 
Social media influencer Midas Touch had 14 tweets go viral on January 6th. According to Open Secrets, Midas Touch is a Democratic liberal super PAC based in Macomb, Michigan. According to the Federal Election Commission, the largest disbursements appear to primarily benefit Prestige WW Incorporated, founded in 2020 to help progressive candidates and organizations stick it to Trump and his enablers online and the PAC's founding brothers, Jordan and Brett Micellis. In the meantime, attorney and Harvard professor Lawrence Tribe was responsible for eight viral Twitter posts on January 6th, primarily to insult and berate Trump. According to Logan, Tribe is also one of the biggest architects of the whole insurrection narrative, both publicly and behind the scenes. Along with helping push the false flag narrative as an influencer on January 6th, Tribe has been a key influencer in pushing the narrative that Trump should be indicted. Tribe also used social media on October 13th to advise Attorney General Merrick Garland that, quote, it won't be enough to approve indictments of Trump related to Mar-a-Lago and obstruction. Garland will have to approve indictments for trying to overthrow the election, seditious conspiracy and insurrection. That's all from Lawrence Tribe the very respected Harvard professor and attorney. A day earlier, Tribe appeared on MSNBC suggesting how many crimes Garland could indict Trump with. While Sullivan noted that every person listed in J6 deleted is an influencer because every single one of those 1,058 tweets were considered viral events, he also pointed out that the only posts that were deleted by Twitter were those on the conservative side. Along with the influencers, he said there were also coordinators, people using similar language in their tweets to perpetuate the chosen narrative. Words like seditionist, fascist, insurrectionists, and phrases like clashed with police, stormed the Capitol, terrorist coup, and domestic terrorists were promoted. Asked if he believes the influencers and coordinators will be nervous when they learn that their activities are being monitored and exposed, Sullivan said, I think they better. The Epoch Times reached out to Rupar and Tribe for comment. While liberal influencers pushed the narrative that Trump instigated a deadly insurrection and his supporters were violently storming the United States Capitol, anyone who posted anything that conflicted with that narrative had their posts deleted and their accounts shut down. Elijah Schaefer posted, quote, Trump supporters have breached the Capitol building. In response, Tracy Beans said, I don't know that these are necessarily Trump supporters, but holy hell. In a similar post by BNO News, Bean said, these don't look like Trump supporters to me. As liberals began posting that Trump supporters were clashing with and pepper spraying police around 1045 a.m. Pacific time, Beans noted at 1043 a.m. Pacific that the Trump crowd has not reached the Capitol yet. All of her posts were subsequently deleted and her account was suspended. Election Wizard said, quote, he would not be surprised if a number of Trump supporters clashing with police are Antifa in disguise, end quote. His post was deleted and his account doesn't exist anymore. For asking, quote, who wears all black and attacks law enforcement, the account of Jay Holmes was also suspended. Melissa Tate posted a video showing Trump supporters stopping suspected Antifa members from breaking Capitol windows. Dems set us up and GOP just threw us under the bus over a trap, she said. Her post was deleted and her account was shut down. And you can go to the article to see more and more examples of all of this. But I'm going to cut to the end. 
According to Kirk Wiebe, the Twitter experience that we're seeing is not new. Wiebe and William Binney became national security agency whistleblowers in September 2002 when they exposed how the government was using a program called Trailblazer to illegally monitor all Americans. Twitter has removed tweets before. It has censored people before, we be told the Epoch Times. This is a censorship operation by the government working with big tech in classic fascist behavior. Whenever government colludes with big business to control people, which is what this is all about, it's fascism. And I'm not sure the average reader understands that. And he's exactly right. People don't understand that because the media tells them fascism is whatever Trump supporters do. According to Weeby, the vocabulary being tossed around in public discourse has blurred a history that was once crystal clear. The people on the left call Trump a Nazi. The people on the right say liberals are the real fascists. And people are confused because they don't teach this stuff in school anymore. According to dictionary.com, fascism is, quote, a governmental system led by a dictator having complete power, forcibly suppressing opposition and criticism, regimenting all industry, commerce, etc., and emphasizing an aggressive nationalism and often racism. Weeby also contends it's not just a matter of deleting truth or changing news, it's omitting news, and it's rampant. Stories are not covered. He noted how big tech censors things that conflict with the government's narratives on climate change, COVID-19, and election integrity. It's massive, purposeful censorship of free speech in this country by an administration that has no regard for our constitutional republic as defined by our founders, we be said. Laura Logan urges everyone to read through the deleted tweets for many reasons, regardless of your political leanings. As a journalist, I can tell you that when we do our jobs properly, we gravitate toward firsthand information and firsthand sources. In this case, it's the independent record of what was said on January 6th and what was censored. So you don't have to take anyone's word for it. Go read it. It's so important. Go read it for yourself and make up your own mind. The frustration for Sullivan is that conservatives have a tendency to complain, but do nothing to right the wrongs perpetrated upon them. How come we're not on the offense? He asked rhetorically. How come we're always on the defense? How come we're not setting the pace? This is exactly my strategy here to set the pace, keep the opposition off balance and control the terms of public debate. This is how we do that. This is our chance to put them on the ropes. This is our chance to make them scramble. Truth is a force of nature. And he's exactly right. A lot of what's happening and a lot of what's being allowed to happen is because of the false narrative that has spread so far and wide. And of course, that's exactly what the propaganda and the censorship are designed to do. That's why all of this is so important and why the people on Twitter and at Twitter are absolutely losing it over the fact that Elon Musk may be taking over Twitter just four days from now. Now, I want to mention a couple recent court decisions that look like absolutely positive signs. I may have mentioned this at the end of last week, but in the lawsuit filed by the attorneys general in Missouri and Louisiana, Eric Schmidt and Jeff Landry against the U.S. government, for its coordination with big tech to censor coronavirus information from the American people, the judge ruled that they would be allowed to get depositions from people like Anthony Fauci and Jen Psaki. 
And it'll be interesting to see how often they plead the Fifth Amendment, particularly because all of the child brains who support these people have determined that pleading the Fifth Amendment is just an admission of guilt now. So that'll be a lot of fun. Also, on Friday, Justice Diane Freestone in the Supreme Court of New York in Saratoga County ruled that universal voting by mail over fears of the coronavirus is unconstitutional. She wrote that the Democrat-controlled legislature appears poised to continue the expanded absentee voting provisions of New York state election law in an Orwellian perpetual state of health emergency and cloaked in the veneer of voter enfranchisement. She wrote that in her ruling. She also ordered local election boards to stop counting absentee ballots they've already received and to preserve them until after election day or after the resolution of a lawsuit filed by Republicans in the state. The ruling does not invalidate the ballots that have already been mailed. But imagine being a New York voter who has already voted by mail or intends to vote by mail and then hearing this, especially if you're the sort of New York voter who voted by mail in 2020 and has spent the last two years repeating the slogan about how the 2020 election was the safest and most secure election of all time. Those votes are unconstitutional, and they were unconstitutional then. There is also this today from The Federalist. Judge strikes down Michigan Secretary of State's restrictions on poll challengers. In the latest advance for election integrity, the Republican National Committee just won its lawsuit against Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson for restricting the rights of poll challengers. As previously reported, before Michigan's August 2nd primary, Benson issued last-minute guidance limiting poll challengers' ability to oversee local elections. This guidance included the superfluous addition of a form to apply to be a challenger, creating an artificial deadline for when poll challengers may be appointed, restricting who poll challengers can communicate with, and banning the use of electronic devices in absentee ballot counting areas. The lawsuit alleges that by issuing such guidance without any formal rulemaking or process, Benson violated Michigan's Administrative Procedures Act. Michigan Court of Claims Judge Brock Swartzel agreed with the RNC and invalidated the new guidelines. Benson and the state's election director, Jonathan Brader, must now rescind the guidelines or revise them to comply with Michigan election law. Swartzel also found that some of the provisions were at odds with Michigan's election code. Jocelyn Benson not only disregarded Michigan election law in issuing this guidance, she also violated the rights of political parties and poll challengers to fully ensure transparency and promote confidence that Michigan elections are run fairly and lawfully, RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel said in an emailed press release. This ruling is a massive victory for election integrity, the rule of law, and Michigan voters. Benson plans on appealing the ruling according to her office. And I don't know this, but speculating, I would imagine that Benson will go ahead with these guidances and just leave them in place under the excuse that this decision is actually being appealed. Just as Delaware election officials are going forward with sending out mail-in ballots, even though they were already ruled unconstitutional. Now, I find the timing of all of this interesting. 
because the elections are coming up in 15 days. These decisions represent the chipping away at the election fraud apparatus. And some of this may not be resolvable for the communists. They might actually see their election fraud apparatus fail and be overwhelmed in places they never expected. I find it particularly interesting that this New York decision came down just two days after we were told for the first time that Lee Zeldin has taken the lead in polling over New York's current unelected governor, Kathy Hochul. Perhaps people realize that this decision was coming down and that it would be very difficult for Hochul to win without all of those mail-in ballots they sent out unconstitutionally. The central narrative is now filled with stories about how the Democrats are failing across the country. The candidates are failing. Some are not even debating. Katie Hobbs is actually being regularly criticized by mainstream outlets for her refusal to debate Carrie Lake. And the polling numbers are collapsing for Democrats nationwide. So what are they going to do? Well, it's beginning to seem really possible that they might simply claim election fraud once Republicans wipe them out on November 8th. And that would really be spectacular. Today, Politico published this piece. Biden administration set to warn about threats to nation's election infrastructure. Top Biden national security officials are tracking multiple threats to the nation's election security infrastructure ahead of the midterms and are set to issue warnings, including in an internal intelligence bulletin this week, according to two people familiar with the matter. Isn't that amazing? Politico just has these sources that know about internal intelligence bulletins that haven't come out yet. It's almost like their sources are the intel community. The bulletin will lay out details of cyber threats posed by China and Russia, as well as other non-state actors and potential physical threats to election officials in jurisdictions across the country, the people said. The warnings come as the midterm elections near and amid increasing reports of intimidation at ballot drop boxes. The people requested anonymity to talk freely about sensitive national security and election matters. Isn't that great? That officials with knowledge of these things will just come out and talk to Politico so long as they can remain anonymous. They're basically just saying, hey, Politico, tell everybody this thing that we want everybody to believe. The Department of Justice is set to address several malign influence schemes and alleged criminal activity by non-state actors in a press conference Monday. It's unclear if its announcement and the intelligence bulletin warnings are connected. Well, we've now seen that announcement and they were not connected in any obvious way. But journalists during the question and answer portion inserted the China and Russia election interference narrative into that press conference. And I imagine that they'll write up the non answers given by Christopher Ray. The internal administration concerns about election threats come days after a call was held between federal officials and local law enforcement personnel about the midterms, according to one of the people familiar with the matter. Those on the call discussed the potential for violence in response to the spread of false narratives regarding the election process. You got that? It's going to be violence by MAGA extremists due to disinformation. 
all MAGA extremists are so mad about the fact that the 2020 election was stolen, or that's what they believe because of disinformation, that they're going to go out and be violent on election day. Absolutely no one wants that. And there's no real indication of that anywhere. That sort of stuff is not being discussed on our side in the least. But that reality doesn't matter at all. All that matters is that people who read Politico think something like that might be coming. So if there's any incident at all, no matter who is responsible for the incident, everyone will know exactly what to think. Officials said election workers, including those at polling stations, are likely to face threats and harassment from extremists, both online and offline. The person familiar with the matter said, well, does that have anything to do with the company Connick that was exposed at the pit, that company signing contracts with Democrat officials and controlling the information about election workers that was sent over to China for the express intent of manipulating those election workers? Could that be it? Is that what they're talking about? No, or at least let's not say that. Let's just leave it as it is. We'll just imply that it's MAGA extremists, both online and offline, harassing election workers. We are now hearing reports of people surrounding ballot drop boxes, some even wearing tactical gear and questioning people, said John Cohen, the former counterterrorism chief at DHS. Are the police prepared for that? They need to be. All of this is being driven by the false narrative that the 2020 election was stolen. The FBI, DHS and DOJ did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Already, there have been incidents of armed individuals in tactical gear showing up at ballot boxes in Arizona, prompting the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office to be called into the area. And the Maricopa County Sheriff is Paul Penzone. That's a Soros guy. Cyber threats to America's election infrastructure have long been a concern of government officials. Indeed, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the intelligence community have been monitoring such threats to the midterms for months. But officials recently said foreign adversaries have not been actively targeting the election system. And they never do, of course. Never, ever, ever. At this time, we are not aware of any specific or credible threats to compromise or disrupt election infrastructure, CISA Director Jen Easterly told reporters on October 13th. And she used to be a former special assistant to Barack Obama, so you know you can trust her. Even so, Easterly said this year's combination of misinformation, harassment of election workers and insider threats from rogue election administrators makes the current threat environment more complex than it has ever been. CISA did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Officials consider misinformation and disinformation the biggest threats to the midterms, given how easy it would be for malicious actors, whether domestic partisans or foreign intelligence operatives, to seize on delayed results or isolated voting machine glitches to spread lies about the security of the process. So the national security threat to election infrastructure is primarily misinformation and disinformation. People who might take delayed results as an obvious sign of fraud. People who might take 
isolated voting machine glitches as obvious signs of election fraud. That is the threat the Biden administration is worried about when it comes to the elections. But think about this. Misinformation and disinformation isolated by themselves are not really a threat. So people end up believing the wrong thing, right? Well, the only time that becomes a threat really is when people act on misinformation and disinformation, and they're not communicating any signs of that being the case. That's not the threat. The threat is misinformation and disinformation. People calling the election results into doubt. People expressing concern about the integrity of the system. That's the real threat. If too many people notice obvious attempts at election fraud, well, we're going to have another January 6th. And we all know how real that was. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, 
Getter, and Gab. And I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at imyourmoderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!